Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 14 of Bilge Pumps. You have the regular crew and you have Commander Salamander on here. So of course you all know who I am, I'm Dr. Alex Clark and now I'm going to let my colleagues introduce themselves. So who wants to go first? And who wants to go last? Who wants to go in the middle? <laughs> it's Jamie here from Armoured Carriers. With a rather fetching hat, I must say. Yes, his head, apparently, even though he's in Australia and it's the morning, his head is cold, so he needs an hat. Then, of course, there's there's me, Drac, or Drakinifel of the YouTube channel of the same name. Who's uh, just running in from world of the world of warships um Adm- armchair admirals recording yes where i nearly killed excellently in. i nearly killed myself pulling half of the usni's back catalog off the shelf and, <laughs> and, and i i guess i'm the guy with the funny accent um uh, i go by you just call me sal but uh, commander salamander and i also host a talk show um called midrats we've been doing for a while so it's uh, uh, an honor and a pleasure to have an invitation to come join somebody else's podcast who can do the post-production and all the fun stuff. That, <laughs> that is the advantage of the, doing other people's podcasts. They, everyone, they have to do the work. That is the great advantage. And what I would say about having Sal in here is he managed to skillfully avoid being on episode 13. Yes, we'll all, he'll, we'll all say it's down to sort of timing issues and those sort of snafus which happened. But actually, I think it was Sal's plan going, I don't want to be part of episode 13. That could be jinxed. So I'm well, going to skip that. It's the classic uh, American tradition. Let the Brits do the hard stuff and then we come in later when it's a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And the British have the tradition of doing that to the Australians. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah, you know. That's why we call you our crack troops. We call the Australians <laughs> and the Canadians our crack troops. You know, there is a reason we have done this throughout history. The South Africans, the Gurkhas, the Canadians, the Australians, these are Britain's crack forces. The, the Canadians are our elite our elite infantry. The Austra- the Australians are the uh is the case of we want what would be the best way to sum up the Australian Navy in World War Two? We particularly dislike this particular aspect of the Axis Navy, so we're going to do the equivalent of some ungodly crossbreed between a Viking berserker (laughs) and a set of very, very angry scythe blades on a massive wind-up spring, and we're just going to drop this into the middle and then run away (laughs) and come back later. I always thought it was because the Australians had the best headgear. Oh, they, they do. They do. Yeah, it helps in the Mediterranean. I think that's that's probably yeah. It's it's the British are operating the in the Mediterranean, and they're just like, this is sun. It's like that must be why they did Matapan because it was dark. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> well, this is one reason why the British start to prevent night fighting. Everyone it? thinks it's about tactics. No, it isn't. It's because the British are allergic to the sun. So <laughs> that nighttime is our match. We are really vampires. This the this explains. Realize this. You do realise this explains Singapore thoroughly. Yes. That that, that, just no more discussion on Singapore. It just has too much sun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And in the daytime in the Mediterranean, send HMS Sydney. That'll it can take on most of the Italian Navy on its own. Yeah. Come back when it's dark again. (laughs) 
It works. What, what are we supposed to be talking about today? It is, we are supposed to be talking about the future of escort design, the future of warships. Um, and I'm just going to throw this out here because I know this is going to start off money discussions. So the literal combat ship. Opinions, everyone? Is it the literal. future of things to come? A, a literal combat ship. <laughs> it's literally a ship. I'm not necessarily <laughs> sure about the combat part. <laughs> the, the little crappy ship. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, look, you know, I, I, but yeah, we 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 like to um, laugh at these things, but uh, obviously, there's a whole lot of implications for the future because of these ships, and we'll, the only way we can sort of um, uh, confront those implications is to understand how we got to where we are. I think we got to the literal combat ship, and I'm gonna let Sal jump in here because he knows this far better than me. But I think we got to the literal combat ship because no one was quite sure what navies were supposed to do in the 1990s. The Cold War had gone, and there was this idea amongst the political classes especially that the world was suddenly going to be peaceful, that peace was going to break out, and the strongly worded note was going to reign supreme, and that we were no longer going to need military force, and what you were going to need was going to be scalable capability to deal with terrorist threats and uh, occasionally rogue nations and this sort of thing and it was all going to be wars of choice and wars of prediction and things that were going to give you time and it was basically going to be a technological race and there was going to be no peer conflict and there was going to be none of those issues and the trouble is 30 years later we are now dealing with all the ramifications of this because it takes a long time to develop ships. It takes a long time to develop crews. It takes an even longer time to develop strategic thinking to the level at which it percolates into a political class which is going to be dealing with the election in the next four or five years because that's what they've got to think in to keep their job, to keep elected. And most politicians are worrying about keeping elected. Let's say, let's, for the argument's sake, believe they are good, hard-working people. Their view is they want to be re-elected because they want to continue to do good for their communities, which is why they tend to focus on elections and getting re-elected. It's not just a pursuit of power. Let's take that for the argument because otherwise we can get off into a whole other argument than the future of ship design. And I'm going to stop now and let you guys carry on. But Yeah, the LCS has, has been my little beaten stick for for a while. And I think, you know, you talk about what, what begat, and I think you outlined a lot of people, um, whether they were there or not, do forget that, you know, in the 1990s, you had this, uh, what do we do next routine after the, the Cold War was won. But one of the, one of the thoughts that led us towards the littoral combat ship, uh, you had, you know, the street fighter design and Wayne Hughes and all that stuff. But there was also, it came up on a regular basis, and why they called it littoral combat is the U.S. Navy got spooked by, the, it was, for lack of a better phrase, the bog hammer effect, where you had the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy and their center console fishing boats with a bunch of RPGs and heavy machine guns on it, cruising around Spruance-class destroyers and Ticonderoga-class cruisers that had what I call a sterile hull. These were ships designed for high-end combat against the Soviet Union. 
And when you're fighting the Soviet Union, you've got Kirov's backfires and Oscars. You don't need crew-served weapons. You don't need 30 calibers, 20 calibers, 50 calibers up topside to take off small um, boats. So, and people wouldn't say, well, we can just get a spot welder up there and put a couple of uh, stations up there. So they were looking, what can we have up there to protect us from these small boats, these bog hammers? Well, anybody had seen the Pentagon Wars about the Bradley fighting vehicle knows where that led to. And unfortunately, LCS got caught up in the arrogance of, of what I call the age of transformation. A lot of people focus on Vern Clark and Don Rumsfeld. They do have a large responsibility for it, but it predates and postdates them. It was a, a love of technology and the seduction of a w desire to forget what decades to a century of industrial age shipbuilding and program management taught us. Instead, I had these wonderful consultants uh, with PowerPoint slides telling me they fixed the problem of expensive people, they fixed the problem of tiresome maintenance, they've fixed the tactical problem by this technology that it isn't quite ready now, like the in-loss missile, but oh, we're going to be there just one more palm period, so don't build your next class of ships like you always have. Be famous. You know, be a hero, be transformational. Let's jump a generation. Let's have another offset. We're going to have this littoral combat ship with this rapid fire 57 millimeter, these non line of sight missiles, and all these um, unmanned drones flying around that's going to do wonderful things. And then we're going to have a replacement for the Splurance class destroyer that's going to just cover the earth with 155 millimeter long range rounds and to top it off we're going to have this ford aircraft carrier that we've we've managed to import enough chinese pixie dust and unicorn farts and all these wonderful things are going to happen at half the price sign right here will make it happen and there were some people like tal manville uh, who we did an interview with on my podcast a while ago that really outlined well the warnings he and others gave at the time that you are assuming away technology and program risk too much and it's going to blow up in your face. And I also know some peers of mine at the time who were basically told to shut up and color or you're fired. And so they kept their opinions behind the door. And here we are here in 2020, um, well, I guess we're at least on the American side of the house. We're going to build Arleigh Burke class destroyers till the crack of doom, and then we're going to steal some Italian and French ideas for frigates. But that's okay. Well, you know, they're fairly good frigates. Uh, they are. I like them. I, I, I'm still surprised you got. I know because of the way you guys wrote the program, and I think I can see where this is going. You're going to build some of the French frigates, and then you're going to probably launch your, launch your own frigate program. But you know, that's the thing. That's why you probably didn't go with a Type 26, because then you wouldn't have probably been launching your own program. <laughs> but going into that, and one of the interesting things I find is I think lots of navies have dropped into this, uh, this, uh, this, sort of thing, uh, this sort of impact, and lots of air forces and armies. It's not just been navy or sort of services. They've all sort of dropped into the technology gap. And you, 
sit there and go, but they had this same mantra in the 1920s and 30s. You know, me and Jamie, because we talk about aircraft carriers, especially at that period, till poor Drac is going, oh my God, not again. Um, and he's actually doing a series on armored cat on aircraft carriers mm. at this moment, probably because me and Jamie have mm. have worn him down to this point. <laughs> the the point the amount of time in the nineteen when you're here is looking historians back and talking about nineteen twenties and thirties and World War Two, they're going, oh yes, they must have all known that the coming technology was going to be aircraft, and they should have been designing around this and this and this. Mm. And you go. A, they didn't know it, and B, they were quite honest they didn't know it. When they were designing ships, they were actually factoring in the fact that we don't know how this stuff is going to work, so we are factoring in space. We are factoring in this capability. We're factoring in a sort of capability. Uh, we are being honest about what we don't know, and I don't see that in today's programs. There is no honesty about what we don't know about the future. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the the pro a problem with the LCS the way I see it is threefold. But one of those problems actually applies across the board to a lot of systems, including the Zumwalt's. Um, the two that's LCS specific, uh, at least so far, some of them these could recur in other areas. One is is mission creep, because I think if you look at the original concept for the LCS and then you look at what it, everything it was supposed to do by the time it was finished they added in a whole lot of other extra capabilities to the design spec after they decided to build build a ship that was going to be called the LCS. And that never worked out well because you keep trying to cram more and more and more stuff on it. You begin to lose sight of what you're actually trying to do. And you end up with what's effectively a glorified pointy speedboat um, that can't really do that much else. And the other thing which is... I mean, it happens all over the world to a degree, but especially in the US is, I believe, what the US calls pork barreling. Because with the modules, okay, some of the module stuff might, may or, the technology may not, may not have worked uh, once it was fully developed, but you should have still have been able to at least plug it all in. And as we've, as you said earlier, the Stanflex system proves that you can do a modular system that works if it's all done to the same standard a lot of the problem with the lcs is because um because they were determined to get as many votes for it as possible you have all these modules designed by all these different defense contractors all across the country some of whom may not actually be the best contractors for that particular module but then they don't talk to each other and so the systems end up broadly incompatible and you have to do a whole load, lot of extra fudge work to try and get it all together in in one place and hopefully working and then it doesn't work and then it's all all goes horribly wrong not that that's uh, the first time it's happened um, as i've said before i think on this podcast i still hold a special place of hatred in my heart for the people who decided to pork barrel the space shuttle project one because they ended up being as much more inefficient than it could have been and two because that those political political decisions ended up costing the lives of two full space shuttle crews because the original design spec of the space shuttle would have avoided both challenger and columbia um and actually would have made both of them survivable even if magically they'd still happened um but the the third issue which i think has affected both lcs uh, especially with what commander salamander was was just talking about and with uh zumwalt as well is 
they've almost followed what I call the reverse of the warrior effect. And you may have heard me talk about this before, but in my view, if you are the global leading hegemon, you should follow the same kind of design principles the Royal Navy did when it came to HMS Warrior. You spend a fair amount of money and a fair amount of time testing and refining various individual new and shiny technologies that you think might be good and looking to the future. That way you can see which ones work, which ones don't work, and take the ones that have worked and make them better, make them more compact, make them more powerful, etc. But don't don't put them all together in one place until somebody looks like they're trying to sort of clutch together some rather inelegant solution because they've made a breakthrough in one place, which is what the French did with Gloire. And then as soon as someone does that, you go, okay, right, that's cute. All of these systems we've been working on for ages, we're going to put them, and we've got all nice and refined, we're going to put them all together in one boat, one boat we're going to, or ship. We're going to use our massive industrial capability to produce dozens of them, and we're going to do it about six times faster than you can. So you, the, the, you're at this other, your other rival has just spent five, ten years working on this brand new fancy technology, and you turn up six months later with 12 that are all looking much better than theirs. Um, and with things like LCS and Zumwalt, it's almost the exact opposite of that, as as Commander Salamander was saying. They started building the hulls before they even had a working weapon system. And then, like with the Zumwalt, it's like, oh, we, we built the ship, and oh, we, we didn't actually get half the weapons to work well. We have a very interesting low-polygon count warship, and not a lot we can do with it. Um, and LCS is pretty much the same thing. As you mentioned, like N-Loss, didn't work and the mine counter warfare module mostly doesn't work um so you've effectively got an incredibly expensive incredibly quick opv it's one of the reasons i worry about the type 31s because they are also designed to this use this modular system but i i think the royal navy is going just the modular insert mission capabilities like mine countermeasures which might be make it sort of easier Mm. Uh, i interrupted you salvas so you carry on no, no, no. It's um, in in the same when you're talking about the development of the warrior, and the, this the shame is, and one thing I've always pointed to before, um, in more distant history, is I'm a big fan of the interwar development of cruisers, that evolutionary, you know, class and subclass development uh, that really by the late 30s you had reached just the uh, the the epitome of development of that type that at least in the U.S. Navy, we saw in the heavy cruisers that were converted into missile cruisers up through the end of the Vietnam War. I mean, they lasted a long time. Mm -hmm. But even in more recent history, that build a little, test a little, learn a lot procedure that uh, Rear Admiral Mayer in the Aegis program, uh, we had that history of doing it right and we, we threw that all away for, I think, you know, a lot of the reasons you described right there. And one of the, the, the other driving forces, um, besides the money, is so many compromises were made in the LCS to meet an incredibly arguable speed requirement that they have very Tiffany uh, engineering plants that have a lot of problems, which is why even though we have a lot of LCS and they're still coming out of the spillway, is uh, you don't see them in REMPAC right now. 
and you do not see them doing much but the occasional sortie in Westpac. Uh, they're they're not functional uh, units for the fleet commander, which is a a huge lost opportunity cost for for our fleet. And I I know y'all had the Imperial y'all the the British Navy had some engineering problems with the Type forty five, uh, but nothing like the engineering problems that they have with the uh, LCS. And what I'd point out is the great, my dad was one of the naval architects who was actually involved in the Type 23 and Type 45 and all sorts of projects. And um, he always pointed out when discussing the Type 45s, yes, but this was the trouble is they specified them for certain things. So the engineers built them for that. And then they operated them in places where they weren't specified for those temperatures. So we were trying brand new technology, which was sensible to try because it is was a very sensible technology development. But when we were designing developing it, we designed developing it for a certain temperature bandwidth. And no one questioned in term, despite the engineers coming backwards and forwards and going, are you sure? Yes, yes, this is what we need to operate it. We only need to operate in this temperature bandwidth. Are you sure? And then it turns out when it goes, it can work quite well when it goes colder than that temperature bandwidth. Still, surprising enough, engines generate enough heat that they can work when it's colder. But when it goes hotter, that's when you get the trouble and you get the power outs. And they're now fixing that. But you sit there and go, no one thought, hang on, we do a lot in the Gulf. We do a lot in the Indian Ocean. We do a lot in the Mediterranean. How hot are, do they get? This might not be operating around the UK and just in the North Atlantic. Yeah. But, but I mean, the thing is, it's... The, the thing that also, I mean, we, we talk about the future of warship design. If you want to follow the actual warrior effect, there are a number of interesting technologies and things that are coming together at the moment. So, for example, um, you've got the, in the US, you've got the future large surface combatant program, hmm. which supposedly they're going to announce soon enough what, what they're going to do with it. But if you look at what the US has got on going at the moment, they've got a, a new sort of very heavy VLS cell, very large VLS cell system coming in. They've obviously got the Mark 41. Yeah. Um, and the Mark 53 is the one in the Zumwalt's. Yes. We do. Um, so the, I think the new one they're looking at is like a, some kind of a improved variant of the, of the Mark 53. So you've got, you've got existing working good quality missile tubes. You've got bigger ones in that coming down the pipeline they're working on lasers, they're working on rail guns, they're working on new and interesting um, surface-to-surface missiles and uh, surface-to-air missiles. They've got now this modular Spy-6 radar uh, for the Aegis system that appears to be working pretty well. So a lot of these components are either there or... Sorry. They're either there or they should be there very soon. And so I think there is probably some kind of there there is an opportunity there for someone to go, okay, we're going to build a ship that's going to incorporate all of these new features plus things like stealth. And the question is though, is the is the timing. Do you do a repeat end up doing a repeat of the Zumwalt where we go, well, we think we're going to have these capabilities in a year or two or three. So we're going to design the ship now for it. Or do you hold off until you've got that nice 
broad spectrum of capabilities and then you show up with everything that works all of a sudden. That is always a question. Yeah, because well, because I suppose the thing is, at the end of the day, if if you're going to build a a crew, let's say let's say we're going to build a cruiser of fifteen, twenty, twenty five thousand tons, something to make that the upper end to make the Kirovs look envious. What what is ultimately is going to be best for the U.S. Navy? Is it going to be they start building one in twenty twenty two, comes into service twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six, and half its systems are either non existent or don't work. Or do they hold off a little bit, revise, work on the design, lay one down in 2024, comes into service 2026, 2027, and it's all singing, all dancing, and makes people run away screaming because it, it looks like you put the top half of an Imperial Star Destroyer into the water <laughs> and possibly mounted massive speakers so you can play the Imperial March as you sail down the South China Sea. <laughs> what I'm hoping that they do is... The American version of the Frem that we're building is, in a large measure, a response to the debacle of LCS and DDG-1000, where we're going to go with a proven platform and proven technology so we can actually have holes that are displacing water that are of use to the fleet commander that we don't have with LCS and DDG-1000 right now. Now, if you recall a few years ago, and I actually had a great uh, dinner with one of the individuals that was involved with the predecessor to the large service combatant called CGX. Ah, and, yes. The, and CGX the Holy Grail. Yeah, the CGX destroyed itself because it did have everything but Admiral Akbar on the bridge of the <laughs> Star Wars Star Destroyer up there. It was nuclear power. It was vaporware. It was PowerPoint thick manning concepts. It was that somebody finally strangled in the grave. Unfortunately, um, and for those that look at how old our Aegis class, I mean, our, our Ticonderoga class Aegis cruisers are, can appreciate, uh, we now have some significant issues because an Arleigh Burke is not a spruance when it comes to air defense for a variety of reasons. Um, we've lost a generation of shipbuilding. So to, I'm hoping that we will have hoisted on board those lessons. And we build something like we kind of did with the Spruance class. When you had Flight 1 come out, there was some white space and some voids there where they go, this is where the things that are coming will go when they're ready. And then you had later production ships that had new things put in there, like Mark 41 VLS, and then they were retrofitted when the older uh, first flight ships went into the shipyards. Uh, hopefully that's the path we'll take. But, but ultimately, I don't think we have the luxury of taking aboard a lot of technology and program risk with the large certain service combatant because we've already shot that bolt with CGX. We've got to have something that can at least have the same capability plus pick your percentage of our Ticonderoga cruisers. So our you know, GDP of half the EU nation's cost four-class aircraft carriers have some type of capable air defense. And the thing is, 
I'm just jumping in before Jamie, and I know he's got a good point because he's been thinking for a while. I've seen the cogs <laughs> going around. But the thing I've sort of been thinking, looking at the, C, uh, the looking at the new large service compound program and all these things, is like you, I've been watching the Zumwalt and the issues they've had. But what they did have work was the Mark 53 VLS. What they didn't have work was the rail guns, and we could all have predicted that the rail guns weren't going to work in the time because the only way you could really get the rail guns to work at the moment, because the big issue with them is the power storage and the maintenance issues. You could possibly get around the maintenance ones, but the power storage to get them to actually fire at a reasonable rate of the period is just not available at the moment. The only way you could really have got round that power storage issue and had enough power to fire them would have been nuclear power. So the one point I sort of see, it, it, the one reason I see to go for nuclear power for a large service combatant is if you are going to try and put rail guns into something which works in the next decade or so, or ne next decade or two decades, until the, the, the power storage is the big problem. And there are all sorts of people talking about using various forms of flywheels and other systems uh, to try and generate, keep, maintain this power for this uh, for the rail guns and it's just you sit there and go yeah but do you want that operating on your ship do you really want that system running on a warship in the middle of combat do you really want that there making a lot of noise or doing all the things it can potentially doing do you want you don't because it could be a big handicap yes you get the cool fancy technology but you get all these problems because of it and it was with the with the Zumwalt's. I always wish they'd gone right then. We're going to go. Had actually said we're building them with the advanced gun system or something like that, and they're going to be able to fitted for the the rail gun when the rail guns become available. Because then I think the Zumwalt's. I don't think they would have built thousands of them and tons of them, but I think they might have built five or six rather than the three they've gone. So they would actually be in a useful number and they would be viable because. They would have stood, they would have given you a little bit of time before you had to get into. They wouldn't have been an air defense destroyer, but they could have been very useful as a status ship going around the world to show up everyone else's ships until you want to build the ships you need to build. If that makes sense, if, if that sort of sounds remotely sensible. You know, the idea is you use them for presence, sort of, they go around the world. And, you know, the, the latest Chinese cruiser comes in. Oh, yes, we've got this cruiser. Uh, look at the zoom up. Uh, yeah, we look out of date. <laughs> I guess you look, mindset to me uh, is you know the thing that uh, this all comes back to. Um, I'm guessing that you know the 90s were. We, we keep forgetting how incredible the pace of change is at the moment. Um, the 90s was <laughs> when you know, you know computers started to come into their own so everyone everyone in the 90s was talking about computer assisted design everyone in the in the early noughties were talking about um yes, simulated testing of equipment you, you no longer needed to build a, pro, a prototype um, rail gun you could do a complete simulation in the in the computer and and therefore predict any problems before they actually happen in reality. I think that's probably the biggest problem with the Ford uh, design. Um, but, you know, this, it was the, 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 the optimism because of that pace of change, everything was just, you know, that optimism, I suspect, is um, at the, the, the foundation of all of these problems, is that we went from, you know, a dial telephone to a pocket 
smartphone in the space of 15 years. So it's, it, it, you know, the, the parallels, as you say, with the, the, the 1930s is, and 20s is uh, um, are quite clear, but also I think much, more, much greater. And you know, even in the 30s, they still had problems with predicting, obviously, what the next step was going to be. Uh, in particular, British cruisers, I note, didn't, uh, didn't have enough electricity. That one of their problems was having enough power to, to run um, their um, the uh, yeah, the pumps for the um, for, for damage control and enough power to run the radars and the systems that, that was and retrofitting that wasn't so easy because they'd been built the, the um, generators had been built to fairly tight margins but it, it's it's to me it just seems to that the 90s and noughties became an era of magical thinking. Does that sort of fit your perspective or your 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 overview of the of the of the of the path where we're at? Yeah. Well, I think the, I'm not trying not to get too much politics involved, but I think you saw in the '90s you had this a lot of people buying into this whole end of history thing, where they 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 thought that. The West and America especially had won history and this was like everything was now going to be the broad sunlit uplands of Western democracies flourishing and spreading across everywhere else and everyone and there would be no more challenges. And at that that's the point where everyone start where people start going, Ah, oh, yes, well then we can start just effectively playing around, messing around. We don't need the we don't need Basically, it takes your it takes your eye off the ball. You lose your focus if you don't think there's going to be a big threat, the next big threat out there. You start casting around for a reason to still exist. If you're if you're a, like a naval building industry, you start casting around for a reason to exist. You start looking for well, what can we do? How can we justify ourselves in an era when everyone thinks there's not going to be another big war? And then you start going down some really weird <laughs> environments where you weren't ever actually supposed to be. Yeah, I was I was uh, right there in the 1990s as a, a lieutenant and a lieutenant commander. And that's exactly what it was, is there was a whether you were in submarine surface or aviation uh Everybody was looking around, okay, what do we do now? And you had very weird stuff going on. You had, you know, our last nuclear cruiser, the USS Long Beach, I think it was her last deployment, was to the Caribbean chasing down drug runners off of Columbia because, well, there's there's nothing else to do. Uh, it, it, it was a time where everybody was, you know, you had our defense secretary, Bill Perry, who you know had the Last Supper where he got all the defense contractors together and said, "Y'all either need to consolidate or you're going to die," and that had, in my opinion, at least horrible secondary effects because we lost competition when Northrop was no longer competing with Grumman. They were now Northrop Grumman, um, and that created all sorts of challenges. Uh, in that. And people made decisions and made compromises. And I was thinking, you know, we were talking about the the decisions about the Type 45 engineering plant and when people decide 
how tight their planning assumptions are going to be. And part of, I think, we, the Imperial, we need to get comfortable with is we need to be willing to spend an extra couple of cents to open up our assumptions and to allow flexibility. For instance, when people think of submarine warfare in World War II, they think of the German U-boat arm. And even from an American perspective, we don't talk enough about the American submarines and what they did in the Pacific, maybe because a lot of what we did was the same that the Germans did in the Atlantic. But when you look at the relative success the U.S. had um, strangling Japan across a hugely different body of water of the Pacific, you have to look at submarine design. The American boats were relatively huge because they said, we are probably going to have to do stuff across the Pacific, so we need lots of fuel, which means we need to have lots of range. Hey, look, what else can we do with this extra size? We can add air conditioning because if we want to go around the tropics, we can't sweat to death. Uh, for those that are, there's a great book rent, uh, about the, the Naval Institute Press has out the, about the U-boat war in the Caribbean and the German U-boat crews <laughs> had challenges uh, uh, working in the tropics. Uh, we also had freshwater distillation. What that meant is we carried a lot of torpedoes. We had a lot of time on station, and we could show up places the Japanese never expected. Uh, but if they had had tight assumptions, we would not have had the submarines that had the ability to create the effects that they created in the Western Pacific in the 40s. And it is one of the interesting things when we're talking about is also the British submarines are, and I've been doing a lot of work on my channel to try and sort of rectify this, despite not really being a submarine historian, but, you know, I've been trying to work on it because the British submarine warfare capabilities and what they produce is completely forgotten because mm -hmm. it's all about the anti-submarine warfare when you're talking in Britain. And what is forgotten is that actually part of the convoys which were sent out, often some of the convoy escorts, they often send a submarine along with them and scouting ahead to try and spot German submarines, to try and spot enemy surface combatants, which or, or mine layers or things, they would be sneaking ahead, conducting reconnaissance. And people forget the role of submarines in providing reconnaissance and special operations in World War II. They concentrate entirely on almost one small part of the war in, one, in a perspective from the submarine warfare. And that's what they draw the lessons from. And this is another point which I think when we're talking about the future of ship design, and I'm, you know, going to get on my own hobby horse here, so I do apologise to the to all three of you for jumping on this. But the amount of times you don't, you get a very selective pulling of history when you're seeing the powerpoints for the future ships. They pull a very selective operation, or they pull a very selective thing. And you sit there and go, yeah, but there's a whole wider load of context going on here, which you have to bear in mind. And you're using this to argue for a very, very specific warship. You're using this to argue for a very, very specific ship. And actually, what necessarily it, it uh, and this is me getting it, this is another place I get in trouble. I like the Type 26 as an anti submarine warfare frigate. But every time someone says we should, Britain shouldn't buy, shouldn't buy any Type 31s, instead should just buy a couple more Type 26, I look at them like they're insane. Because the Type 31 is your general purpose cheap asset, your present ship, your filling in the gaps vessel. 
it makes sense to have it for a smaller navy. In fact, it makes sense to have it for the US Navy. And it's the sort of thing almost that the, the LCS almost should have been, this sort of cheaper asset which can fill in the gaps where you need it. It's not great at anything, but it's good enough all round, uh, all rounder that you can adapt to certain circumstances quite easily to fill in the gaps and act as your second line in terms of wartime and your front line in terms of peacetime. Because in peacetime, you don't want to waste your best ships chilling around the world flying the flag. You have to do it because you have to fight peace as much as you have to fight war. You have to do the presence mission. But you don't want to wear your best ships out, constantly having them having to go and do these missions. It just wears their engines out and stops uh, them getting training time in. Yeah, I think I think the other thing when it comes to the future of ships, it also has to you have to think, who am I? Where what is my place in the world? Because I think one of the reasons that the Type Twenty Six or sub variants of it has been a relatively successful export design is because the Royal Navy, the Royal Canadian Navy, the Royal Australian Navy, they have similar needs at a similar scale, i.e. they're, they're medium-sized navies um, pushing, pushing that they're on the upper end of the medium-sized navy tree um, and they have big global commitments that they need to make. They need to go long distances and they need to work quite a lot on anti-submarine warfare and so it makes a certain amount of sense. But if you're the Chinese Navy, you have a completely different sense of priorities because you want more hulls. And at the moment, you don't have that long distance commitment that you, that the the royal various royal navies have to have to do. So you're going to design a different ship. And for the U.S. Navy, again, the Every, with everything being built around the the carrier strike groups, which is not something that no one else has. The closest you get to it would be a group built around a Queen Elizabeth, but a group built around a Queen Elizabeth for the Royal Navy is the centerpiece of the fleet of the entire Royal Navy. Whereas for the US, a carrier strike group is an element. It's not the element because if you wanted to go this is the element this is the us now you're talking about a four carrier strike group so their needs shipping wise are going to be different again so you can take lessons i think from other people but you can't just slavishly copy them um, unless what they've built just happens somehow to fit it fit your own niches as well and where i'm sort of driving with this is that as well as recognizing where you sit in the world and what your capabilities are going to have to be, you also have to recognize that that might change between the last thing you designed and now. Um, and I know when with the last time when we were talking about refits and the fact that we, uh, I was saying that the Kirovs probably suit the Russians a little bit better because they can have fewer fewer but powerful hulls. We have to face the fact that China is building warships like it's going out of fashion and they've got a lot of money and and it provides a lot of employment yep, to keep and, building those ships yeah and relatively speaking to their economy they're building them internally they don't pay anywhere near as much per ship as the western world does for its own ships for various reasons and 
to, to illustrate the point I'm I'm getting at, I wonder if at the moment, and I'd be very interested to hear what Commander Salamander thinks on this, that but the at the moment the US Navy has a massive fleet of Burks of the early Burke class. I'm beginning to lean more and more towards the US for the next its next generation not really going down that same kind of line because everybody who matters has a sort of an eight to nine thousand dish ton destroyer design but if you're going to compete on that field that means you've got to compete with the chinese and if the chinese are chucking out type 54s and type 55s on mass you have to ask yourself can we match them for raw numbers output first and then two can we match them for numbers where it matters i.e in the pacific because the chinese remember can concentrate pretty much the entire plan in the western pacific it's the reverse if, of what britain was facing in world war II, prior to world war ii yeah, if britain the US, has to rule the world the usn could and the jijian could concentrate yeah, on one ocean exactly you, and if the if the us can build 25 percent more hulls does that matter when 50 percent of those hulls are going to be not in the western pacific is it not better perhaps to build a slightly larger vessel a crew like this sort of large future surface combat something cruiser size because it yeah, it'll cost you slightly more per hull, but you'll get exponentially more capability out of it. Um, I'm looking at just briefly looking at things like something like you compare an Arleigh Burke to a Sejong the Great. Um, you're talking ships that are well over 500 foot long, but the Sejong the Great is only 40 foot longer than an Arleigh Burke and about four four foot wider. So not not a tremendous amount compared to their overall dimensions. But it's got more than 25% greater missile capability in terms of numbers that it can throw. Now, translate that up a bit, considering that the Sejong the Great, displacement-wise, is only just fractionally above a Burke. Take that up to 15,000, 18,000, 20,000 tons. Just how powerful a ship could the US Navy put at together for that? And now, okay, maybe they can't build them in Burke swarm sizes, but even if they build... 30 or 40 hulls that would be a, a ridiculous amount of power thanks to the square cube law working in favor of hull volume that they could put out to sea and yeah can maybe the chinese have more type 54s and 55s but will it really matter i mean you you brought a point that i i will yell in anybody's ear they'll let me get close enough is you know, the, to, to use our, our, our land components, little planning documents, in the Western Pacific, the Chinese have internal lines of communication. We have external lines of communication. And they are, in my opinion, well past the pivot point of having regional naval supremacy if they wish to take it. And now some people will downplay what China's doing. Well, they haven't, you know... We don't know how good their stuff is. They haven't actually fought a naval war. Well, neither have we um, in living memory. Uh, But I have other people who have told me, do not downplay what the Chinese are doing. Yes, they are growing rapidly. They're learning a lot. Uh, But they, they have taken on board the best practices of post World War II fleet development and have executed it they're building good stuff 
iteratively, iteratively improving it. They're exercising more. They're learning how to execute things. I'm sure there are limitations here and there about them, but I find it a very dangerous tendency for people to poo-poo the Chinese because most of the people I talk to who poo-poo the Chinese still think that the, 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 the PLAN of today is a PLAN of 2003. That simply is not the case. And when you look at their Type 55s, they're not destroyers, they're cruisers. They are. And the reason why the U.S. Navy has a gap there is because we, in our own arrogance and incompetence, failed in CGX. So now we're waiting for the large surface combatant to fill that void. And as we talked about before, hopefully that is done correctly. Um, the, the Chinese, I give them a lot of credit. They, uh, they understand what they want uh, and they are incrementally taking steps to do that. And w what I'm waiting for is at some point, it could be next week, it could be next decade. I don't know. But barring some internal disintegration of the, the, the Chinese regime, at some point, they are going to challenge somebody in the Western Pacific for them to put down their firm marker that um, in addition to our bluster, we have teeth and we have claws, don't mess with us. Uh, is that going to be the U.S. Navy? Is that going to be the Japanese? Are they going to, uh, who knows? Uh, but that point is going to take place. And uh, I think the odds of it being a debacle for the Chinese are not high, uh, the way things are presently going. Uh, Jerry, uh, not, not Jerry, um, Brian McGrath and I exchanged a, a few comments before about um, Michelle Flournoy that some of y'all may be familiar with and her discussions about talking about, uh, well, if we tell the Chinese that we're going to be able to defeat them in 72 hours, then that will be a deterrent effect. Looking at Chinese military history, you can go back to the Korean War. I don't think Western blusters that we're going to crush you in 72 hours is going to deter anybody when they have their own internal math they're doing on their own. I think, I think that's not a wise philosophy for us to take. If anything, it's provocative. It, it, it almost reminds me of a, a strategic scale version of the BBC's incredible blunder in the Falklands War of advertising exactly what the Argentinians were doing wrong on international news media which then led to the Argentinians correcting the problem, which then led to more Royal Navy losses. If you start boasting about your capabilities to try and get someone to back off, the thing is, if they, don't choose, if they choose not to back off, you've just told them what you think your capabilities are. So then they're going to start looking at you and going, right, well, if they think they can do this, this and this with these forces, then in order to stop that, we need, we need to do this, this and this. And they will quite happily go back and build or rebuild their forces so that you can't do what you just threatened to do. Bingo. Um, and I think if I was honestly the nation I'd be most worried about, most worried at the moment if I was in around China is Vietnam, because they're the ones who aren't really linked into an alliance network. So the safest nation for them to put down hard 
but have got quite a reasonably developed military is the Vietnamese. Mm. Because you see, if they fight the Chinese, if they fight the Chinese, if they fight the Japanese, or if they fight the Americans, they risk turning into a larger war, not being able to uh, scale, not being able to control its scale. It could spiral out of control. It could turn into a war. They they might well win the first few rounds, but they can't really predict that the war will stop. But with Vietnam. They can attack Vietnam, they can fight Vietnam, they've waged wars with Vietnam before over territories, they've got numerous disputes that could flare up. And who's going to come to Vietnam's aid? Who's Vietnam going to call? Who can go to their aid under the, in, if China's claiming that they started it? Mm. And I think this is the thing, ultimately it boils down to, in any in any military, and I know I do say this fairly often, it never hurts to overestimate your enemy, mm. but it definitely will come back and hurt you if you underestimate them. Because let's face it, if you overestimate your enemy and you you build a force that's too powerful to do what you need it to do, well, what's going to happen? You're going to steamroller over your opponent and wonder, well, what happened? That was far too easy. You underestimate them. And you, that That's when you start losing things. And actually, weirdly enough, it's actually very topical with the... Um, the, the live stream I was just doing just before I came on here with the first battle of Savo Island, the US Navy's own documents in the after action reports pulled out of the, one of the biggest problems that led to that defeat was they had assumed that they were inherently superior to the Japanese. And the thinking stopped after that. It was, we are superior, therefore we will win. We don't need to con consider much beyond that. And the Japanese... I mean, you're talking about a force of that outnumbers the Japanese force and is equipped almost entirely with mid 1930s heavy cruisers versus a scratch, a scratch lot of post World War One designs that have been subsequently upgunned. A few weird and wonderful ones that the Japanese threw together in the mid 20s when they weren't sure how cruiser design was going, and a single modern heavy cruiser. And the Japanese sail out of it with all their ships intact and most of the heavy forces of the Allied fleet heading for the ocean floor. And the only the only major Japanese loss in that whole engagement is is a ship that gets torpedoed by a submarine on the way back in a rare instance of the 1942 era Mark 14 torpedo actually doing its job. Um, and now, fair enough, after that, the US Navy went right okay, maybe we're not as quite as superior as we thought. And over the course of the campaign at Guadalcanal, they re-engineered themselves and came out of it as the US Navy that we all think about when it comes to the Pacific War, um, where in terms of crushing the Japanese Navy quite handily. But the US could afford that to a certain degree. It wasn't nice. And it certainly was a, a, a horrific loss of life. But the US could afford to see four or five heavy cruisers and a destroyer or two head for the bottom because they had more and they could build a lot more. You've got, as, as Commander Salamander mentioned earlier, you've got like the Clevelands and the Baltimores showing up in mass numbers um, all through the World War II because you could build the ships fast enough, you could crew them fast enough. And ultimately, um, if you lose a Northampton and three 
New Orleans class and you show up with six Baltimore class, actually you're overall stronger than you were before. But these days, with the fact that ships these days take a lot longer to build and wars and combat tend to be a little bit faster than they used to be, as the pace of conflict has always been increasing. Do you want to run the risk of another Savo Island? Because you're not going to be in a position to recover those losses. If you have a if you have an equivalent engagement where you send in a couple of destroyer squadrons or something, and or a single carrier strike group with an attached destroyer squadron, if the Chinese turn round and pull a, 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 a variant of Savo Island and leave pretty much your entire force burning and sinking for minimal to no losses of themselves, that's a big chunk of your own strength gone. It's a chunk that you're not going to replace whilst this conflict is ongoing, unless it goes on for half a decade or more. And you're now down a bunch of very valuable ships and very valuable men, which, as we said, given that the US Navy has global commitments, then puts you in a very invidious position of, do you try and sustain a campaign against this enemy you've chronically underestimated with the forces you thought would be good enough that are now minus a bunch of forces that you thought you needed or do you start pulling in forces from all over the place and hope that that's going to be enough um but in so doing you're also abandoning your other global commitments which is a problem mm. you know you hit on you know one of my one of my nightmares is we've had a couple of generations of naval leadership who have soaked in, well, those who have read, uh, going back to somebody I mentioned earlier, Wayne Hughes, in his uh, Salvo combat model and the fixation, not unlike the, the Japanese had of the um, Mahan's decisive fleet battle, this is the Battle of the First Salvo. Mm. To have the Battle of the First Salvo is you need to get all your forces together and you need to go there and you need to let the math do what it does. But there's an incredible amount of risk of concentrating your forces. You know, what is the 21st century Chinese version of the Japanese night fighting capability of the long lance torpedo, where we go forward with our, our math and our war games and uh, the opponent has agency um, uh, the old cliche, they have a vote. You also don't have perfect visibility on the strengths and weaknesses of their technology, just like many times you don't of your own until you start going. So there's a very big danger of that Salvo Island scenario you outlined. You know, pick another mm -hmm. part of Westpac that you want to, to pick. You combine that with a couple of generations of leadership who love the Salvo combat model whether you're talking about anti-ship cruise missiles or carrier strike, and you do have a perfect storm uh, for interesting surprises one way or the other. And is it me or does the, it, it, this is going to sound terrible, but the Salvo model, it sounds very, very similar to me to the pre-World War, pre War II American big wing doctrine. Every time I hear it, their carrier strike where everything was going to be one massive strike. They were going to launch everything. And it yeah. was going to take out the enemy and sweep them out. 
and you sit there and you look at the interwar period and you've got the Royal Navy, which is the ones who have the most carriers in the interwar period, and a, a skewedus in that they start going, well, hang on. Do you want one massive strike or would you prefer to have a survivable carrier and keep up lots of little strikes that you can use for different operations? And you sit there and you look at what happens in World War Two and you find the Americans and once they're freed of treaty restraints, the Americans and the Japanese both start migrating towards a sort of British model with the ability to launch big strikes. And the British start launching to uh, the start sort of growing their model to also add in the big strike capability, but still keeping up that sort of armored carrier, heavy firepower to protect it. This sort of, a, you know, constant operations of aircraft thing, because that's actually what's working in terms of what the reality of combat is like, especially when you're dealing with land based threats. Because one of the things the Royal Navy, of course, have been thinking about wasn't fighting in the Pacific, was fighting in the Mediterranean as well as the Pacific. They thought they were going to have to fight in both. And there was going to be a difference in the scenario. And it leads to a difference in sort of strike. And I, I do sometimes worry when I'm looking at the American carry arms and I'm hearing the salvo battle technique and I, all these things being discussed. It's very much a focus on the Pacific War as it was fought in World War II and not necessarily, again, the full lessons of World War II because... Land-based aircraft are longer range. There are more of them. There are they're still there. There are less carriers than they were at the end of World War Two versus the one. You know, it's more like your time at the beginning. And You've got sort of more of a Mediterranean scenario creeping into certain parts of the of the Pacific, especially the South China Sea. So I hope you have enjoyed part one of two of episode 14 commander salamander was as always amazing and bilge pumps were certainly not going to say no so we carried on talking so it's a double episode this week hope you enjoy welcome to the bilge pumps where a bunch of naval geeks spout off